Father, I ask that it would be plain this morning that all we have is found in Jesus. I pray that each and every one of us would find in Him life and joy and satisfaction. Ask that you would open your word to us, help us to understand it together, and help it to read and shape us this morning. I pray all these things for the glory of your name. Amen. All right, well, just a reminder before the service, so the Woods have graciously kind of provided several things on this table back here for kids. Um, So for older kids, if you guys would be helped by one of those sermon guides that are back there. You you all can feel free to grab one. Um, Maggie's doing a great job of kind of overseeing that. Um, And then obviously, parents, you know, with younger kids, you guys have the freedom to kind of move about as you need. And so um, we want to let you know that just that we have those things available for you back there. So Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. We've been working our way through this letter from Paul to the church at Philippi. And this morning, we're going to cover a lot of ground. So we're going to cover all of chapter 2. Now, as you like inhale and, and, and get ready, it's, we're, we're not going to dive deeply into every single verse in this passage. So you can exhale. Um, but I think it can be helpful from time to time to look at even an extended section of Scripture because sometimes there's a, a unifying theme that kind of binds different flows of thought together. So the book of Philippians is one letter meant to be read at one time, and so it speaks of different things, but there is a theme in the book of Philippians that is joy in Christ, for example. And in chapter 2, there's an even kind of more specific theme that Paul hits from several different angles, and that is very simply the theme of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so the question that I hope to answer this morning with you all is, is how do we claim to be a follower of Jesus? If you are a follower of Christ, how do we relate to the cross? Maybe to ask that question a different way, what does the cross have to do with you on Monday morning when you wake up? when you're caring for kids or when you're going to school or going to your job, what in the world does the cross have to do with you? Is it simply a a nice piece of decoration that hangs on your wall in your home? Uh, Maybe it's the shape of a necklace around your neck. Uh, Maybe it's a bumper sticker on your car. Uh, None of these things are bad, but is that all the cross is meant to be in your life, or is it meant to be more? Is it meant to be just simply something that we think about every year on Good Friday? Or maybe even every month when we take the Lord's Supper. Again, these are good things, but I hope that you will see the burden of Paul in Philippians 2 is to show us that God intends for us to live cross-shaped lives every single day. For the cross to shape how you interact with your spouse, your kids, your co-workers, 
a stranger you meet on the street, for, for all of those things to run through the filter of I am a Christian who is identifying with a man named Jesus who was crucified. And that should work its way out in my life. And so it, it's been said that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are cross-shaped books. What I mean by that is that everything in the life of Jesus, if you read through one of those Gospels, it's all building towards Jerusalem and where he's going to be crucified. So nothing Jesus does is done without a view of the cross in his mind. So even when he's born, his mother Mary is told that he will one day suffer and die. Even throughout his ministry, Jesus reminds his disciples constantly when they forget that the cross is where he is heading. He's not here for recognition or fame in a worldly sense, but ultimately he's going to the cross. And so the Gospels are cross-shaped books. And so I think that's a helpful illustration then for how we think of ourselves on this side of Calvary. We're looking back at Jesus who was crucified, and now we're saying, okay, that is meant to shape how I live my life today. And so Philippians 2 is going to kind of lay this out for us. And so just at the beginning, I want to I kind of set this disclaimer aside. The cross is an example for us, but it is more than that, right? We know that At the cross, Jesus paid for our sins in full once and for all. And so there is a sense in which that event is not repeatable by us. And And that's a wonderful thing. If Jesus has paid for your sins, that means you do not have to pay for them yourself. But I think we can... And in, in sometimes in overemphasizing kind of the one-time event, we can, at least maybe in our corners of thought, forget that the Bible does also present the sacrificial giving of himself, Jesus dying on the cross, as an example for how Christians are to live their lives. And so Philippians 2, I think, in a real way kind of helps bring this to us. So just to put it plainly, if you're looking for kind of a main point for this morning, it's just very simply that God intends for the Christian life to be a cross-shaped life. God intends the Christian life to be a cross-shaped life. And we're going to talk through what that means in kind of three pieces. There's three sections to Philippians chapter 2. In verses 1 through 11, very famous section, we're going to see that the cross-shaped life is a life that is marked by humility. In other words, nothing is beneath you if you're a follower of Jesus. And then in verses 12 through 18, we're going to see that the cross-shaped life is a life marked by self-denial. That to forget about yourself and to follow Jesus is actually the most freeing thing that you can do as a person. And then lastly, in verses 19 through 30, we're going to see that the cross-shaped life is a life marked by service. By giving yourself away for the sake of others. And we'll see that in, in two examples. So first... Verses 1 through 11, the cross-shaped life is a life that is marked by humility. So let me read verses 1 through 11 of Philippians 2, and you can follow along with me if you have your Bible open there. 
begins this way. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So these words are some of the most incredible words in the entire New Testament. This is probably the clearest statement from Paul on the incarnation of Jesus. That is, Jesus willingly leaving his heavenly home and coming into our humanity by taking on human flesh. So there's, there's pretty good evidence that verses 6 through 11 are some kind of hymn that the early church would have sung together. So Paul might not have invented this himself. He might be bringing that in, and, and we're maybe familiar with verses 6 through 11. But, but notice, Paul is not just giving us like a theological lecture about the incarnation of Jesus. He brings this up because it supports a point that he made at the beginning of the chapter. Did you guys see that? He says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So there's the command that he's giving, and then Jesus is going to be the example. But it's interesting. We've seen this phrase, selfish ambition, before in the book of Philippians, haven't we? Way back in chapter 1, right, there were these people who were preaching and they were doing so from selfish ambition in order to promote themselves. And so I love that Paul understands that the sins that we might see out there don't ever just stay out there. They're they're always present among us as well. I know we can get so caught up with the sins that we see in the culture around us, but the sins that God is most concerned with are those that are in the room, in you and in me. That's what God wants to deal with. And so that's why he says, do nothing from selfish ambition, because he knows we are all prone to do things from selfish ambition. We all want to prioritize our own personal preferences above others. Paul brings this up here because he knows that's how we're wired as people. Like from birth, our default setting as human beings is to go through life thinking what is best for me. So the toddler who rips the toy out of his sister's hands because he wants to play with it, he's doing that because he thinks that's what's best for him. Right? The, the teenager who gossips behind her friend's back because she 
wants to just spread different rumors. She thinks that's best for her to do. The businessman who fudges numbers a little bit on his tax report so that he doesn't quite have to pay as much as he thinks he should is doing that because he thinks that is what is best for him. I don't know if you remember that story that broke a few years ago of those parents uh, who cheated in order to get their kids into these Ivy League schools by paying lots of money. They were doing those things because they believed that that was what was best for them. And you you may chuckle at this. I did a little bit, but we're a lot more like the seagulls in Finding Nemo than we realize. The only word they can say is mine, mine, mine. That's just how we're wired as people. And so the good news of Philippians 2 is that even though we're wired this way, God can and does rewire us by his grace to think not only for the interests of ourselves, but for others. And he does this by lifting our eyes off of ourselves and helping us see Jesus who did the exact opposite. And so the cure, if you're a person who is like driven by selfish ambition more than you want to be, it's, it's not to just start hating yourself. That doesn't help. It is to look at Jesus and see in him the best possible solution. And it is living a life of humility where you see yourself correctly and you see him correctly. And that humbles you to the point where you say, okay, nothing is beneath me if I am following Jesus because nothing was beneath him. And so that's where Paul goes in verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So not only did Jesus empty himself in verse seven by taking the form of a servant, he went further than that. He even humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, not even a dignifying death, even death on a cross. He puts that in there to remind us that death on a Roman cross was the least dignifying, most dehumanizing thing that a person could go through. And Jesus went all the way down there for us. So the point then is that there is no place, there are no people, there is no job, there is no activity that is beneath you if you are a follower of Jesus. And even as I say that, God had to work that into me in really difficult ways, even over the past year. So a couple years ago, Brooke and I moved from Nashville. I was in ministry there. We moved up to Louisville, Kentucky. I was going to begin doing doctoral work at seminary and was expecting that the Lord was going to provide for me there, just a wonderful church to get to lead and serve in ministry. And so we packed up our things and headed up there. And about three months into that experience, I was bagging groceries at a grocery store for my job and did that for the majority of last year. And, and I wrestled for months wondering what in the world I had done uh, to not get to be where I wanted to be, but instead be doing something that I felt like I shouldn't be doing. And man, Philippians 2 is what God 
took my mind to and slowly just kind of drove this text into my heart to say, if I truly claim to follow a Savior who left heaven and went to a cross, then how can I say that any job God gives me is beneath me? Jesus didn't deserve to go to the place that he went to. I actually do deserve to be there. In my sin, in my rebellion against God, I don't deserve anything above being at the lowest place. But God, in his grace, met us there. And so now, as followers of Jesus, there is nothing that is beneath us. And so I slowly praise God that he kind of brought me to some degree of repentance from that thought or that feeling. And so I pray if you're, if you're there, if you find yourself there regularly, whether you're changing diapers all day or whether you're working a job that you don't particularly love or you're interacting with people that don't necessarily have a lot to offer you in return, there is no place, no job, no person who is beneath you if you're a follower of Christ. Only the gospel gives us this kind of freedom to go there with Jesus. And so that's where the cross-shaped life begins. It begins with this embracing of a life of humble service to others because that's where Jesus went. Now it's interesting, in verse 12, Paul says, therefore, and he goes in and he gives several different commands. And so I I think there's a connection between what we're about to see in verses 12 through 18 and what we just saw in verses 1 through 11. And that's this middle piece of what the cross-shaped life looks like. And it looks like a life of self-denial. In other words, learning to forget about yourself for just a minute and then learning to follow Christ instead. And so there's three commands that help us do this that Paul gives us. I want you to see them. If you underline things, you can underline them. Um, In verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, here's the first command, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now keep following along with me. Verse 14. Here's the second command. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And then here's the final command. Likewise, verse 18, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So let's just look at these three commands slowly, and I hope that will help kind of paint this picture of what self-denial looks like for us. So the first one there, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We could preach an entire sermon on that verse, and I'm going to refrain from doing that for your sake. But I just want to observe one thing. Notice, Paul does not say work for your own salvation with fear and trembling. That would be the opposite of self-denial. That would be self-reliance. 
that will be relying on yourself in order to produce what God wants from you. It's not what he says. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then very quickly, for what? It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So to work out your own salvation then is to live in response to the gift of grace God has given you and to work out how obedience looks in your life. I emphasize that word your because it looks different for everyone. All right? So it's a general command, work out your own salvation, but the process of self-denial is going to look different based on the details of everybody's life, right? Let me give you an example of this to illustrate this. At the end of John's gospel, Jesus, in his last conversation with the apostle Peter, he's telling Peter about the trajectory of his life. He basically tells Peter that there's going to come a day where he is going to be taken somewhere he doesn't want to go, and he's actually going to be killed for his faith. And so, beloved little Peter hears this. He looks at John, who's actually standing there listening to this conversation, his friend, and he he looks back at Jesus and he says, what about him? Like, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus says to Peter, literally, he says, what's that to you? You follow me. What happens to John, I have designed for John's life. That is not how your salvation is going to be worked out. That's how his will be worked out. What's going to be worked out in your life is the specific plans that I have given you, Peter, so you follow me. And so I hope that helps you see that God gives each of us different ways to deny ourselves based on the responsibilities, the gifts, the trials, the things he has given us. But the general command is still there that all of us have to do this in one way or another. And then there's that promise of life, right? That when we do give up these things, Jesus will then fill us in ways that we couldn't even imagine. So that's the first of these commands. Then the second are a little more general. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so you might be blameless and innocent, he says, and shine as lights in the world. So why do grumbling and disputing not work with people who are committed to living a cross-shaped life? Well, no one grumbles or complains because they're trying to please God. No one argues or fights or disputes with another person because they're just being too selfless in that moment. Both of those things come from a place of pride and self-reliance. And these things happen in our own church when, when we do insist on our own way. And so I pray that all of us together would see what Paul is saying here, that, that when we avoid those things, we will then shine as lights in the world. And then he says, so hold fast to the word of life. The moment your heart begins to just swell with pride because you disagree with somebody and you're ready to tell them the 10 ways that they're wrong, hold fast to the word of life and remember Jesus, who when he was wrongly accused, 
did not say a word to defend himself. When he could have grumbled and complained at the trajectory his life was taking when he was going to the cross, he kept silent and he rejoiced at what was before him. And so there's that final command Paul gives us then. He says, rejoice. Rejoice that God gives you grace to forget about yourself and to learn how to follow Jesus. This is why Paul could say this, because he had given so much of himself to the Philippian Christians, right? He says he was literally being poured out as an offering for their sake, but rejoice because Christ was all to him. And so verses 12 through 18, again, they they just kind of, I hope, help us see that when everybody in the body of Christ adopts the mindset that was laid out in verses 1 through 11 and then walks in obedience that all of us benefit from that. In a real way, everybody wins. So our our primary question is not anymore what's best for me, but now we begin to slowly ask what is best for you? What is best for my brother or sister in Christ? What is best for my neighbor? And so even as we begin to ask those questions, Paul gives us two examples of people who did that. In verses 19 through 30, he talks about Timothy, who we have heard of before, who is helping Paul write this letter. And then he talks about another guy named Epaphroditus. So let me read verses 19 through 30. Look at them with me. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me with the gospel." I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So here's Timothy, right? He is genuinely concerned for their welfare. So it's not a show for Timothy that he is serving Jesus. Other people might seek their own interests. They might want something in return for what they're doing. They might want praise or recognition or applause, but not Timothy. His concern is for the well-being of their souls, and that's it. He has no, no ulterior motives. And then Paul says he has proven his worth. And now secondly, look at Epaphroditus, verse 25. I thought it necessary, Paul writes... To send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow." 
I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So here again, going back to our point of work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Epaphroditus had a little bit of a different path from Timothy, and yet he was still denying himself to serve others. So in Epaphroditus's case, what did the cross-shaped look, life look like for him? Well, he was a brother and fellow worker, but at some point along the way, he got sick. We don't know with what, but he got sick and he was near to the point of death. Paul says he nearly died for the work of Christ. So maybe he was working himself to death, wouldn't advocate for that, but that was the situation. And then when he recovered, what did he do then? God spared his life. He didn't say, that's enough, I'm tapping out. He said, I'm going to continue. And so he's actually going to the Philippians to encourage them and continuing to do the work that God had pointed out for him. So bring these two examples together. Timothy, Epaphroditus, what's, what's the point? The point here is that the cross-shaped life looks like a life of service of being willing to give yourself away for the sake of other people. When you've been humbled by what Jesus has done to come to you, the lowest place, when you are learning daily to deny yourself, then you're free to serve those around you in Christ. And so they had this willingness, and I pray that we would as well. And so if you're here this morning and your natural reaction is similar to mine of like, okay, Paul, Timothy, Paphroditus, Jesus, like these are people at the top of the list, if there was one, of faithful followers of Jesus, and I am not there. Uh, If you're having those thoughts, then you're like me, but uh, I'll come back to the point again. Work out your own salvation. It may be that denying yourself begins in very small ways. Begins by not biting back at your spouse when you could with sharp words. Begins by not responding in anger or frustration in a certain situation or whatever it might be. Or it begins by very simply and in very tangible ways looking for the needs right in front of you that God has given. Um, and, And just in a very, again, in a very practical way, in our own midst, we have needs in ways that we can serve one another. Every meal we have, or every Sunday we have this wonderful meal that is provided and always happy to accept more people to serve in that way. Right after the service, we're going to meet to discuss ways that we can serve our kids and ways that we together as a body can commit to this and to give ourselves away for the sake of the youngest ones in our midst. And I pray whatever it is, whatever that looks like for you, that God would 
give you the grace just to see whatever need is right in front of you and be willing to meet that need. And so we'll we'll close here this morning just with the acknowledgement that living a life in humble, self-denying, sacrificial service to others is not easy. These things are not natural to us. But what is not easy or natural for us, that is where God loves to give grace to enable us to walk in obedience. So if you hear nothing else this morning, just hear me as I close, that even though walking in the way of the cross is difficult, your acceptance before God is already secure in Christ. Go back to verses 6 through 11 again if you need to. Where Clayton began us this morning, I'm glad he did because rarely does a sermon text intersect with specific day that we're preaching, but October 31st, not Halloween, um, 504 years ago, October 31st was kind of the beginnings of what would come to be known as the Protestant Reformation, in which the basic truths of the gospel were recovered in the church, and people began to see afresh what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And one of those truths that was recovered was the truth that we are secure in Christ, that we don't have to wonder if our salvation is dependent on our ability to obey him that that is the foundation from which we do everything in the Christian life. So we can carry our cross and follow Jesus because we know Scripture promises promises us that one day we're going to exchange that cross for a crown of glory that we will then promptly lay down at Jesus' feet and thank Him for the gift of salvation that he has given to us. So I pray that that we would remember that together this morning, even as we consider what it looks like to follow Christ in carrying his cross. Let's pray.